This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Well, welcome to the Russell Moore Show. I'm Ashley Hales, the producer of the show. And this week, we get to consider your listener questions with Dr. Russell Moore. So I'm excited to chat today, Russell. There's some really fun ones. Okay, good. I can't wait. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate this very first question because often we get a lot of heavy hitting questions. And this one asks about Johnny Cash. So, Oh, good. Yes. So this listener writes in, he says... You know, his work was baked into West Tennessean culture, um, but it was the One Man with One Guitar American Recordings album of 1994 that really turned him into a Cash fan. And he wants to know, what are your thoughts regarding the six American Recordings albums that Cash did? Oh, they're they're magnificent. And I mean, one of the things that happened is Johnny Cash had been at the height of his stardom in the 60s, early 70s, had a television show and so forth. And then his career had bottomed out. I think it was Merle Haggard who said he was about two weeks away from playing Branson, Missouri, sorts of uh, of off the beaten path uh, song fests and whatever. And when he did these Rick Rubin recordings, which were very different from... A Boy Named Sue and Walk the mm-hmm. Line. Uh, I think they're magnificent recordings. And the Johnny Cash cover of Hurt by Nine Inch Nails mm-hmm. is powerful. And even though it's the same lyrics, it comes across completely differently because here you have somebody who's elderly looking back on his life. Mm-hmm. And the video, the music video, I think is especially uh, powerful because June, his uh, wife was still alive, but was right about to die. She was in the mm-hmm. video. And he's looking at the House of Cash and all of these 
aspects of his life and singing, You Can Have It All, This mm-hmm. Empire of Dirt. Yeah. Uh, it was really, really powerful. And then maybe even more than that, I love his version of The Man Comes Around, which is is taken right out of uh, Book of Revelation. Yeah, yeah. And comes with such a... Such an authority part of it is just, I mean, Johnny Cash saying anything is authoritative, but you add to it the vulnerability Mm. of uh, somebody in that stage of life who's kind of reflecting on his own mortality and singing about Day of Judgment. It's it's resonant. It's really powerful. Uh, Thanks. That's really fun. We used to have some friends of ours who would put their toddler son to bed, you know, a few decades ago, listening to Johnny Cash narrate uh, the Bible. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which, yeah, real powerful. <laughs> yeah. I live, of course, in Nashville, and I have a, a former student who was from Hendersonville, just right up the road on the other side of the city. And he was in church with. Johnny Cash, First Baptist yeah. Hendersonville, I believe. And he said it was not until he was an adult that he knew what Mr. John did. He was just <laughs> the great. guy at church that would let them ride four wheelers out on his property. And, and oh, you know, perfect. <laughs> until he was a grown man that he thought, wait a minute, that's Johnny Cash. Whoa. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, Our next question is not quite as fun, but a, a helpful question nonetheless. But what concrete steps do you recommend for pastors, for lay leaders, folks in the church with wanting to love their church, but there's a culture there of kind of consumerism, individualism, a Christian nationalism. And it seems to be that the church is kind of inclined to withdraw from society, but sees itself as healthy because attendance is high. What would you recommend for those leaders in those areas that are finding the church kind of co-opted by Christian nationalism. The most dangerous situation a church can be in, in my experience, is when the church is in crisis but doesn't know that it's in crisis. Mm -hmm. So the money's still fine. The attendance is still fine. But, I mean, this is exactly what Jesus is pointing out in those letters to the seven churches in Revelation. With several of them, it is... The idea that you think you're doing fine, but you're really not. Mm -hmm. You think you're doing the same thing you were doing, but you've lost your first love. And so I think the the main thing would be if you have a leadership in that kind of a church, the first step is sort of to remind people of, of those first love principles. And sometimes what's happened in the church is there's been a kind of drift a mission drift, a theological drift, an affectional drift Mm. that the people don't notice. And it's not where they want to go, but they've just sort of, they've just sort of adapted to something. And so take that Romans 12 model of present yourselves as living sacrifices, renewal of your mind so that you won't be conformed to the world and you can discern what the will of the Lord is. Call people back to Scripture. Sometimes they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to hear. And then you've got other decisions to make. Mm -hmm. But use whatever place that God has put you to at first assume that people 
just are unintentionally moving into a place they don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a long, slow work for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it is. We have another question too, kind of about politics. This listener writes in saying, this is kind of, this is a little hard hitting question. He says, do you ever wonder if you're being used as a pawn by those who are democratic supporters? You know, it seems that you've been writing about the problems on the right, but are you concerned as well about the character of democratic party leaders or leaders who are embracing children choosing their own gender without knowledge of their parents, for one example. He writes, I see leaders that are selling their access to foreign nationals through family members and churches being shut down while strip clubs are open in blue states. So how do you hold the line, Russell, between the right and the left and the gospel as a third way? That will be my kind of way to take this question. <laughs> uh, well, my par- part of my problem with this question is the definition of right and left, which is changing constantly due to mm-hmm. cults of personality. Right. And so I think the primary issue is where is the witness of the church yeah. anchored and what is happening to the witness of the church? And part of that is I think that we need a healthy pro-democracy right and a healthy pro-democracy left in the United States of America in order to have a functioning democracy. Nobody from the very founding of the country, nobody's going to wholly win and nobody's going to wholly lose. And so you need that interaction between some people who are saying, wait, let's change, let's move in a different direction. And others who are saying, no, 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 let's slow down and conserve what it is that we've been given. More important than that to me is the witness of the church. And I agree with Leslie Newbigin who said uh, his context was talking about Islam. But he said the golden calves that Jeroboam uh, set up and said, these are your gods, O Israel, were more of a threat to the people of God than the Assyrian Empire. That's Mm -hmm. the message of Scripture. And so the problems that are internal are more important than any external threat. And when you have a church, particularly my uh, community, evangelical Christianity, particularly white American evangelical Christianity, that is politically colonized, the reason that's so important is not just because of what it does to the country, it's what it does to the witness of the church. Yeah. And if the church is as important as I believe it is, assigned to the principalities and powers of the kingdom itself, then the internal moral authority of the church matters. Mm-hmm. Amen. We have another question kind of piggybacking off of that one from an anonymous pastor who writes about kind of the very far right MAGA movement and the way in which it has been kind of co-opted as a kingdom of God movement. And he asks, how does he address as a pastor these issues pastorally? Of course, he's a concern for his church as a whole, but also for the souls who are being misled. What does he do pastorally? Well, I think one of the things is to be 
genuine and authentic about what you actually believe. And I think the reason that I say that is because there is a tendency in American life right now, sort of generally, and maybe Mm -hmm. even more so in the church, for people to self-censor because my friend Jonathan Rausch, who disagrees with me on everything theologically. <laughs> He's an, an atheist and is from a completely different political place than than I am. But we both are concerned about uh, some of the things that are going on in American life. And he makes the point that both what he calls troll culture and what he identifies as cancel culture, that they're both trying to do the same thing, mm-hmm. which is not persuasion, but demoralization, which mm-hmm. is to say, just wear people down and exhaust them to the point that they will self-censor in a way that you've got great clarity coming from whatever is um, co-opting the church and great ambiguity from those who are concerned about it. And often the ambiguity comes with this sense of uh, maintaining unity when in reality, often what you're doing is maintaining confusion. Mm -hmm. So I think if people genuinely know where you are on something and they genuinely know that you love them and you want to serve Mm -hmm. them, they're not always going to receive it, but you're more likely for them to listen to what you're saying than if you try to hide from it until it goes away. Yeah, that's good. That's really thoughtful. We have another question as well about what does it look like to witness to coworkers in this new digital environment that so many of us find ourselves in. So rather than, you know, when you could meet around the water cooler, lots Mm -hmm. of folks are working remotely. So what does it look like in a digital space to actually live out your faith and begin some of those faith-based conversations with unbelievers? You know, that's a really thoughtful question. Yeah. And I'm not sure that there's an easy answer for it because if you think about those in-person kinds of interactions lend themselves to these sorts of conversations because they're talking about wider ranging things than just whatever is the project on the table with the office. And they also are usually the people that I've seen that are most effective as Christian witnesses in their workplaces. It's because people learn to respect and trust them and learn to start asking questions and they feel safe enough that, I mean, just put yourself in the position of somebody who's not a Christian at all and doesn't have any connection with this. You know, none of us would say, oh, I want to put a sign out front that says, Jehovah's Witnesses, please come to my house (laughs) because I want to talk. I mean, nobody, nobody does this. You're like, oh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are at the door. So the way that usually those conversations happen, people, they know where you are in terms Mm -hmm. of your Christianity, and they know that they can trust you and they can respect you. You're not going to do some sort of a 
multi-level marketing sort of right. operation mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm. And also because a lot of this happens in the context of people going through crises and difficult times and they're saying I don't know how to I don't know how to think about this from the standpoint that I've always had. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to talk to somebody with a different viewpoint. So if you're in a remote situation, that's going to be a lot more difficult to do. And a a lot of that is going to depend on whether there is some form of interaction that's kind of outside of the constraints Mm -hmm. of just here's a Zoom meeting to talk about this particular issue. Right. Mm -hmm. It's going to be difficult. I think what is important is even if you don't have the same avenues in your workplace, make sure that you are physically around people who aren't in the same religious bubble with you, Mm -hmm. Uh, even if it's not that you're at a water cooler. I mean, there are a lot of people I know who do remote work, for instance, who are working in coffee shops. Mm -hmm. And the more they go in, the more they are known and Mm -hmm. recognized by the people who work there and the people who work uh, alongside them. And it it becomes a kind of community that might Mm -hmm. be a good place Mm -hmm. for you to start if you're in that situation. That's great. That's really helpful and practical. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Well, our next question comes from a Sunday school teacher, and she has worked with both elementary Sunday schools as well as middle school Bible teachers. That's a Christian school. And she says she's always been mindful of how moralism can kind of infect how we teach the Bible. And she doesn't want to come away with students saying, you know, just do better or try harder. She wants them to come away with wonder, look what God has done. But mm-hmm. she's also trying to balance this desire with the belief that the scriptures are actually meant to be obeyed and applied. With all of that in mind, she asks you, can you help her understand the delineation between moralism and scripture application? How mm-hmm. do we hit that fine line? Well, what moralism is doing is whether intentionally or unintentionally communicating that God is pleased with you on the basis of how well you obey him. Mm-hmm. And so your standing before God is increased by your activity or decreased by your wrong activity or your, mm-hmm. your lack of activity. And so if you have moral teaching, but you don't have a gospel framework for it, then you end up with the mentality that the prodigal son had at first when he said, I'm going to go back to my father's house and Mm -hmm. serve as a hired uh, servant for him, like one of the hired servants. 
and that's exactly what Paul talks about later. He says, you were you were slaves to the elementary principalities and powers, and you mm-hmm. want to do that again, but you need to recognize that you're not slaves, you're children, you're heirs, uh, mm-hmm. Galatians chapter four. So moralism increases that uh, understanding. The way that you get away from that is not by not teaching morality. It's that you put things in the right order. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a Lutheran, but I think that the Lutheran conception of a law gospel uh, framework mm-hmm. is to a certain degree, at least, really, really helpful. So you're teaching people how to be obedient to Christ and to grow in Christ's likeness not in order to become acceptable to God, but because they are in Christ. This is who you are. And since this is who you are, this is the direction that the Spirit is leading you. And if you're in Christ, that's where God is going to get you, the easy way or the hard way. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so here's how to walk in step with the Spirit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that what that means is, you're always going to have multiple audiences. I mean, you say you've got a Sunday school class of eight-year-old boys and girls. You're going to have some of them who are Christians that you're morally shaping and forming. So because you're Christians, this is what Christians do in mm-hmm. obedience to Christ. And you're also going to have people who aren't yet Christians and who are confused about what does God think of me? So you've got to speak to both of those groups of people at the same time. Mm-hmm. If you think about the way the New Testament, the New Testament is combating, Paul will sometimes in the same letter, I mean, think about Romans, for instance, is combating this idea that because you believe in grace, that means that let's just sin all we want to. And it gives God something to do to forgive mm-hmm. us. And Paul says, no, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And neither is the work harder and harder and harder and harder, and maybe God will stop being mad at you. Mm-hmm. That's not the gospel either. It's, it's shepherding. I mean, it's what does a shepherd do? Mm-hmm. You're leading these sheep and you're saying, no, 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 not over, not over there, over the cliff. Come over here back on the path. And wait, wait, wait. No, no, not over there on the other mm-hmm. side, headed mm-hmm. into the ditch. Come on over here in the path. And you've got to do both of those things uh, while showing them who Jesus is. And yes. it's an ongoing process. I think. Yes. Yes. And thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit to continually shape us in in the whole endeavor. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think, honestly, I think one of the bigger problems is as a teacher oneself, making sure that you have a really clear view of the gospel. And I don't mean that you've got your, in your mind, or in your lesson plans, a clear view of the gospel, but at the root of who you are. Mm. Because I find for myself, this is something I have to deal with all the time, is that I forget the gospel Mm -hmm. all the time. And what I start to do is I start thinking, God's mad at me. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that in my mind. But right. deeper than that, I think, well, God's mad at me because I'm disappointing to him, mm-hmm. which assumes 
that God's really pleased with me when I'm really excelling. Mm-hmm. And both of those things are contradictions of the gospel. So I have to remind myself of what it means to start with who I am in Christ. I'm crucified, I'm raised from the dead, and then apply that to how do I live out a life that's obedient to Christ? But I can't mm-hmm. start the other way. I can't I can't start with here are all the rules and regulations. And now that I've kept all of those things, <laughs> I'm I'm acceptable to God and I'm in Christ. Mm-hmm. That way leads to either what John talks about, if we say that we have no sin, then we we lie to ourselves mm-hmm. and we call God a liar. The truth is not in us. Or you end up with this sense of despair and discouragement, and you really start to think of God like Baal. He's a taskmaster over Mm -hmm. you. You have to figure out how to manipulate him. Yeah, that's good. We have another question about youth, particularly, coming from a writer and a youth pastor about how can we restore the dignity of youth ministry in a social media world that has turned it into a meme? Is there a future for youth ministry? I'm not sure that social media is what has done that. And I mean, as you know, I think social media has done a lot to us. I'm not sure that that's responsible for what's happened here because my first, I started in ministry doing youth ministry. And this was in the mid 1990s. It was before the social media revolutions. And I noticed even then that there was such a sharp distinction between people who were doing youth ministry who saw themselves as appeasing parents Hmm. by getting a good product to their children Mm -hmm. and the people who actually saw themselves as pastors and evangelists. They're they're ministering and serving to those Mm -hmm. students and to their parents. And some of that is not because of bad intentions. It's because in our evangelical world, the way we typically do youth ministry is with people who are uh, very young themselves, starting out, don't know what we're doing. uh, (laughs) And so we're learning it as we go. Or with the sorts of lay leaders and volunteers who have a heart for teenagers and often are saying, I don't know what I'm I'm doing, so I'm I'm just gonna try to to do what they tell me to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of products that a person can get that'll sort of step one, step two, step three, step four uh, that are there. That I think that has more to do with it than mm-hmm. social media turning it into a meme. And I find the people who really do youth ministry well are the people who don't have low expectations of the students that they're serving Mm -hmm. or of their parents Mm -hmm. and are actually seeing those people, the Christians as being vital parts of the body of Christ 
who have a place of service within the body of Christ, those who are not yet Christians as people who should be taken seriously and persuaded of the claims Mm -hmm. of the gospel. If you start to do that, there are some things unique about different life stages, Mm -hmm. which is why we have youth ministry, and I think that's good. But there's more that is in common with sort of the the general human predicament of being sinners in need of reconciliation with God than there is the the distinctiveness of a particular generational cohort. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, because we do have that sharp sense of the difference between the, the life stages, is that there's this assumption where you're going to grow up and the context is going to be completely different for you. When in reality a lot of the same things that are going on in mm-hmm. middle school and high school are also going on when you're 40 years old and 50 <laughs> years old and 80 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And we just we just sometimes, I think, miss that. Yeah. Well, thankfully, though, we don't have to carry around plastic lunch trays and find people, to, you know, to sit with. <laughs> well, you, you, you do I mean, sometimes in different when ways. you're in the senior yeah. adult home or the nursing right. home. Right, that's true. That's yeah, true. That's what, that's what I learned <laughs> when my grandmother went into a, a senior kind of assisted mm-hmm. living mm-hmm. facility is I realized, wait a minute, this is youth camp. These are the same dynamics because she's saying, you know, Gladys really likes Harold, but <laughs> I think that Harold really has something for Mildred and people are talking. Yeah, it's, it's you can't. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Oh, no. <laughs> Stuff to look forward to, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, a quick question from another listener asks, do you have any beginning apologetic books that you might recommend for a layperson? Kind of like an apologetics for dummies. She's, she says, I've been a Christian for many years, but I need help with some questions about the authenticity of scripture is particularly her area of focus at the moment. I think that one of the best books that, that I've ever read on authenticity of scripture is um, John Wenham, Christ in the Bible, I think is the name of it, about Jesus's view of scripture. I think it's a really, really good book. I also think that there are some, there are some really, really good works about specific parts of scripture. So for instance, Richard Baucom mm-hmm. and uh, Peter Williams both have done really, really good work on the Gospels and the authenticity of the Gospels. And, and really, if you think about it, everything hinges there because if the Gospels actually are authentic eyewitness testimonies mm-hmm. that are pointing you to the reality of Jesus— And then you see the way that Jesus is treating Scripture. It it all sort of hangs together uh, Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. We have another question from a woman named Amy, who's a part of a vibrant Episcopal congregation in New England. And the church has recently been placed with a new rector who is affirming of the LGBTQ plus areas is how she says it. And she feels like she's stuck. She holds to a traditional and she says, I believe, theologically orthodox view of marriage and sexuality. 
and know others in the congregation who share her beliefs, but she doesn't know what to do. This is a place that she loves dearly, and she understands that they hold space for her views, but she also doesn't know if she needs to be moving to another congregation. I don't want to leave, she says, but I'm deeply uncomfortable with the direction of our church, and it's breaking her heart. What would you suggest to Amy and others like her? Well, I think really, regardless of what the particular presenting issue is, Mm -hmm. you have to, when it comes to being a part of a church that is in conflict with your your deep conscience convictions, you have to be able to tell the difference between, okay, this is a congregation or, or a larger church, a denomination or whatever, mm-hmm. where we're kind of sorting this out. And so we're in the time when my voice is needed. Mm -hmm. And when does that become a situation where your being there actually is a violation of your conscience or that you're just in a situation that's kind of hopeless? Yeah. I mean, and that, I mean, I remember I went to a, there's a mainline Protestant denomination that had really lost its scriptural orthodox groundings on the question of the authority of scripture. Mm -hmm. And there was a group of committed orthodox evangelical believers within that communion. And uh, they happened to be meeting, their denominational assembly was in my city at the time. So I went to the meeting of this evangelical group Mm -hmm. and they had as a speaker George Will. That's why I went. I love George Will. I'm a big fan of George Will. And while I'm there uh, going up in the elevator, there's another group, a caucus of um, Sophia uh, goddess uh, (laughs) uh, worshipers of the divine feminine or what have you. They're within that same denominational body. We're having their meeting somewhere else. And I realized, you know, Bless these evangelicals' hearts. They're having this meeting. They're having George Will, who's awesome, but he's an agnostic. Mm-hmm. They don't really recognize that things are really too far gone to right, have right. any sort of uh, work of reform in mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. It's not always easy to tell because, yeah. I mean, look at the Reformation itself. Martin Luther is not trying to form a new communion. Mm-hmm. He's trying to reform the church, right. the Roman Catholic church. There comes a point where he realizes, I can't do that. And the situation is such that in order to have my conscience bound to scripture, I have to leave. That's mm-hmm. not always easy to be able to tell. Yeah, And you have to sort of be able to to read the room as to whether you're in a situation where you actually have a voice to change things or whether you're in a situation where that's not going to happen and and you find yourself convicted by conscience. And that also means being able to sort through for yourself on the basis of Scripture 
what are the issues that I'm willing to be a minority voice on because it mm-hmm. doesn't actually confuse the gospel uh, itself or the authority of scripture itself. There are going to be some of those sorts of issues. I wouldn't mind being in a church that had multiple different views about women's ordination or multiple different views about the gifts of the Spirit in terms mm-hmm. of speaking in tongues or those sorts of things. I would have a problem being in a congregation that is accepting ideas that actually are challenging the core of the authority of Scripture. So we have to work through what's actually being Mm -hmm. said here. Mm -hmm. And then there are times when you have to leave. There are times in which you say, okay, this debate here is really settled and I can't go along with where it's settling. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an important uh, question of the mission Mm -hmm. of the church. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I I have to leave. So I think sometimes there's that moment of, there's that moment of tension. It's really similar to the question you asked earlier Mm -hmm. about the Christian nationalism in the church. You have to almost You have to have the discernment and wisdom to say, wait, is this church going in this direction because they just really haven't thought this through? Mm -hmm. Or has this church decided this is where we are going to go and this is who we are as a congregation and I I don't have the ability to work for reform? And sometimes you you don't know for a while. You're trying to figure that out. Yep. That's really a thoughtful way to proceed, to think about what stage are we in, and to do that hard work ourselves and in community of digging through Scripture. That's really important. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. We have a question kind of, it's similar in some ways to that last one. This comes from a listener who is now attending a Presbyterian church and has a Baptist upbringing. And he is wondering about how you are handling some of your own personal leaving of an SBC congregation and now attending a non-denominational one. Um, And how do you also reconcile two opposing views in one local church? For instance, I know, right, where you are attending Emmanuel Nashville, like they hold to both a believer's baptism and a a paedo-baptist practice. So what does that look like for you personally? And how do you reconcile two opposing views in one local church? Well, my pastor has... uh, jokingly uh, <laughs> accused me of, he said, you know, you've been here 
and our Sunday seminar, people are already calling Sunday school. You are turning this into a Southern Baptist <laughs> church just by your presence. Not really, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't think that it is all that different mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that I have been in congregations, Southern Baptist congregations, many times where I didn't agree mm-hmm. with uh, aspects of the polity. So the, the church that we were part of a, a congregation, a great congregation, an amazing pastor, Southern Baptist congregation, and I was happy there and would be happy there again. Mm-hmm. It's a congregation that is elder governed. I'm a congregationalist to the core. Mm-hmm. And I think that the biblical model of of a congregation is, for lack of a better word, democratically governed by the congregation. I have reasons for thinking that. Nobody at my church ever heard me complain about it, mm-hmm. ever, because I was able to say, okay, this is what I believe to be true. I'm in a congregation where they have come to the conviction of something else, and I can live with that because I understand why they have come to this position. And I think they're there out of good, biblically informed motives, and they may well be right, and I may well be wrong. And I can live with that, and I recognize and know I'm submitting to this congregation. The congregation's not submitting to me. And that means I'm not going to disrupt the unity Mm -hmm. of that congregation at all. And I can live with it. I'm in a non-denominational, multi-denominational congregation. Has a lot of my fellow Baptists, a lot of kind of small B Baptists who don't know Mm -hmm. they're Baptists. A a lot of people are coming from Presbyterian backgrounds, some people are coming from Anglican backgrounds, some people are coming from charismatic backgrounds. And what we're all saying as we come together is we have some differences, but we're united on what we believe to be first order issues, and we're willing to to live with one another on Mm -hmm. some of those other issues. And at least in our congregation, it it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are, are are able to do that. And so I I've seen a lot of congregations that have they're all on the same page when it comes to second or third order issues, but they're in completely different places when it comes to what the gospel is, what the mm-hmm. fruit of the spirit are about, what the mission of the church is. So ideally, would uh, we be in churches in which we are all in complete agreement on every issue from the Trinity right down to the timing of Vacation Bible School? Yeah, I, I guess. But there's something about being in life together, being in family together, that means that you you bear with one another. And that's not a different thing for me. That's that's what I've been doing all along. I mean, I was in Southern Baptist Convention context at meetings where there would be some people who were King James only. I'm not, but I can live with you and work with you. We would have 
there would be all kinds of things of, uh, you know, people marching out with the American flags and sparklers at the SBC meeting uh, during a God and country demonstration. I wouldn't do that. I don't like it. But but we're cooperating together for missions. And I don't feel like it's implicating my conscience in that. So if I were in a context where the congregation is saying, unless you speak in tongues, you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't be able to be a part of that congregation. And if I were in a place that said, you have to baptize your children, babies, in order for them to be part of the covenant community, I couldn't be part of that congregation. But that's not the kind of congregation I'm in. It's it's almost like a, you know, can we actually live by the fruit of the Spirit in those sorts of places instead of defining things so narrowly that we only agree and work together with those who think exactly the same thing as us? Yeah, and I also think that it's it's important that you're not in a context that says, these things don't matter. Right. Yeah. That's so, um, I mean, in, in my context, even though we would have people who would have multiple different views on exactly what baptism is, nobody there is saying, well, I mean, who cares about baptism? <laughs> right. you, you do eh. you. Yeah. Nobody's We're, saying right. that. Yeah. We're saying, okay, we have a commonality in Christ and we have some differences uh, on this, and we think it's really important, but we're willing to work work that out together mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to try to figure this out as we go. So that's a different thing yeah. than yeah. I think saying, ah, who cares? Right. And I think, you know, it comes back to some themes we've talked about um, in this whole episode about the idea that we really do need to be clear. We need to be clear and articulate clearly what we believe and why. And then from that clarity, we're able to partner together or not, as the case may be, as we discern things. But there's a sense in which we need to actually state what we believe and not act as if things don't matter. Yeah. 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 Our last question is a question about the book of Philemon. And a man named Paul, who is reading um, a commentary by Joseph Fitzmaier, as well as N.T. Wright, asked the question, did Paul avoid the harder path by not asking Philemon to emancipate Onesimus outright? Has Paul sinned in, you know, his, is he condoning slavery there? No, I don't think he is. I think what he's doing is he's undoing the basis for slavery. Mm-hmm. By saying this is your brother, yeah, and he's he's giving the basis for uh, slavery to be abolished. in In that context, even if there had been an emancipation, it would not have abolished slavery either generally or in that specific case. Mm-hmm. It would have just transferred it down the road. So I think what Paul does in Philemon is not to uh, in any way endorse slavery, which, of course, was not chattel slavery the way that we think of it. But he's not affirming it and he's giving the mechanism to Mm -hmm. uproot it and to undo Mm -hmm. it. Well, thank you for 
providing a lot of hope and pathway for listeners and readers who can find themselves a little bit out of sorts um, in this cultural moment. I'm looking forward to as well to your book coming out at the end of July, Losing Our Religion. So listeners, I hope you'll go ahead and pre-order a copy of Russell's new book. It's fantastic. I've already been reading a copy of it. And we would love for you to send in your questions as well to questions at russellmore.com. You can ask about Johnny Cash. You can <laughs> ask about, you know, biblical interpretation and how to live in this cultural moment. But it's been such a pleasure, Russell, chatting with you. Thank you for your own hard-earned wisdom as well. Well, likewise. Thanks, Ashley. Yeah. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore, produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers are Abby Perry and Azare Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.